turn to Nehemiah chapter 9, and just a little tiny bit of background before we dive into where we're headed uh, this morning. Nehemiah, uh, as best we can tell, uh, is the last chronological account in the Old Testament. So there's a few, you'll notice there's a bunch of books that come after Nehemiah, and you'll probably uh, eventually get the hang of the idea that the Bible is not necessarily in chronological order. The books are kind of mashed in different spots, and so Nehemiah is the last historical account we have of the people of God before what's known as 400 years of silence, or that kind of time period in between the Old Testament where it leaves off with Nehemiah and prophets like Malachi, and then where the story of God picks up in the beginning of, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, with Jesus on the scene and kind of the beginnings of that. And so this is kind of, uh, we have this big buildup with the story of God where a lot of stuff has happened. God's rescued them out of slavery. They've got this identity. They got the, the law or this basically this covenant of how they should live with God and in light of what all God has done. And, and they're on this journey throughout the Middle East and sometimes having success in battles and, and having those victories and sometimes not and sometimes being faithful and obedient to God and sometimes not. And so the period of history we're in right now is they are in exile. They've been in exile about 150 years, give or take a few years, uh, and they are ruled by the nation of Persia. Um, and the kingdom was split before, and the kingdom of Israel, the northern ten tribes, were taken into captivity. And the, the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, held out for a little bit longer, but they were finally swept up into exile as well. And so we have this people of God without a land, without a city, They just recently rebuilt the temple when we come on the scene in Nehemiah. And really what is happening here is Nehemiah is leading this charge to reestablish the identity and the practice of being God's people. And what ultimately we're learning throughout this book, because we have the benefit of all of scripture not being in the time and place of Nehemiah, is that everything that Nehemiah, and now we have met Ezra last week, everything that Nehemiah and Ezra are doing are leading them towards restoration and fulfillment and finding satisfaction in God. And spoiler alert, by the time we get to Nehemiah chapter 13, the people blow it again. And so this entire book is now pointing to something or someone else who will be the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate restoration, the ultimate answer to this longing of of being in relationship with God. And we know that points to Jesus. And so all throughout this story, having known the story of Jesus now, all throughout the story of Nehemiah, we're looking and we're just, we're waiting and we're waiting for them to to just finally say, oh, it's Jesus. He's coming on the scene. That's what we need. God's going to send his son and he's going to make everything right. They, of course, didn't know that at the time, but there's these these longing and groanings in there that everything that they're doing is, it's not enough. It's not quite there. It's only just a shadow of what's to come. And that's kind of what's happening all throughout Nehemiah. And in chapter six, a few weeks ago, right before Easter, they'd finished the wall. And so a lot of people like to make the book of Nehemiah about building a wall, which is an important moment and event throughout this book and in the life of the people of God. But what happens is the wall's finished in chapter six, and then we have another seven chapters after that. So God is clearly doing something other than simply building a wall. And we find out that Nehemiah's purpose in leadership is twofold. 
It's not just to, to build the wall around Jerusalem, which is important because that was a, a marker and I, an identity piece for them. And it was a very, uh, it was a reality. Uh, it is a physical, tangible thing that other nations would see. And it was a physical and tangible thing for the people of God to understand that God was building them back up again. But that was only one part of what Nehemiah is doing. The second part is he's really establishing them and, and bringing them back into covenant with God or back into a relationship with God. And so all throughout, they've kind of realized that God has been faithful this entire time, that he has kept his end of the covenant, and they are realizing that they have not kept their end of the covenant, and that is why they're in exile. It's why other people were allowed to dominate them, defeat them, and take them into captivity. And what we have in Nehemiah chapter 9 is this really interesting moment. Nehemiah 8 and 9 are sort of like a part 1 and part 2, because what happened in Nehemiah uh, 8, we, we taught on that last week, so we, you can get the expanded version uh, if you go listen to our podcast or something like that. But what was happening in Nehemiah chapter 8 is, is they kind of celebrate this finishing of the wall, Steve read a bunch of names for us in chapter 7 and kind of recognizing who contributed to the project. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, they read the law. They come together for this big worship service. They come in the city. 40 to 50,000 people are gathered within the walls of Jerusalem. And they demand that Ezra, this renowned scribe, priest, expert in the law, expert in the, what he had as the Old Testament, which would have been the Torah and probably the writings of a few prophets and Psalms at that point, and they demanded he read from the law. And they did that from daybreak, from early in the morning till about noon. Everyone stood, Ezra read from the law, and what we understand, it was some combination of reading the text and then Ezra explaining what's happening, giving kind of sermonettes along the way. And then he had the Levites, who were the, kind of the priests for the nations, dispersed among the people, ensuring comprehension. And so for some people, there was a translation that needed to happen because they only spoke Aramaic and not Hebrew, and, and the Torah was written in Hebrew, so there was like an actual translation that needed to happen. There was also just kind of making sure they understood the words, right? So they were kind of dispersed around the people, kind of doing mini Bible studies, making sure people understood. And, and after that happens, they respond, right? And their first, their first gut response is what? Do you guys remember? It's like sadness, it's, it's mourning, right? They're grieving over their sinfulness. They read the law and they realize how short they have fallen from the grace and the glory of God, how far they have strayed from the story of God. And what does Ezra and the Levites do? They say, this is not a time for mourning. This right here, we're gonna celebrate God's redeeming grace. You feel guilt and shame over your sinfulness and your unfaithfulness. And, and there's a time and a place for that. But the time for right now is to celebrate who God is and all he's done. But we're also left in this space knowing there has to be something that happens to deal with this, these diverging stories. That God has always been faithful and the people have not been faithful. And if they're going to renew their covenant, there has to be this reckoning with the sins of, for them and then the sins of the generations before. And that's what Nehemiah chapter 9 is. And so we're going to read from there. But before we read from there, I want to ask you guys uh, a question to kind of help mold this and make this a little bit real for us. So in school, college, high school, or maybe at work, if you're training for something, have you ever encountered a subject where the more you learned about a subject, the more you realize you didn't know about that subject? Have you ever discovered that? 
So, I mean, this happened to me multiple times, uh, maybe just because I'm not well-versed in a lot of subjects, but I would take these 101 classes and, you know, I, you know, these classes that everyone had to take. And so one of them was Psychology 101. And, and so this is huge lecture hall. There's like 200 students and I'm sitting in the back and clacking away on my computer and taking notes. And, and I realized every single day in that class, there was, I thought I knew more before that class about psychology. And then I get into the class and each week I'm in the class, I realize I know less and less about this subject. And there's this like continually widening gap of what I thought I knew and what I actually know in the subject. Has that ever happened to you guys? Are you guys all pros in every subject here? (laughs) I just want to make sure I'm not alone in that. That happens all the time. And I think what Nehemiah 9 is going to teach us this morning is as we explore God's story, who he is, what he's done, his faithfulness, there's going to be a bit of this little widening gap of the more we learn of God's story, the more we realize our own deficiencies and sinfulness and lack of faithfulness and disobedience. And that is intended I think a lot of times we like to be patted on the back and and told we're we're just good people trying our best and and all of these things. But one of the things that's clear through the story of Nehemiah chapter 9 is there needs to be this moment where we recognize our sinfulness. Because if we don't have those moments where we understand our own brokenness and understand the baggage that we bring to the table and and some of our past and, and all of those things, we don't fully appreciate and grasp all God's done through Jesus for us. And that's what's happening in Nehemiah chapter nine. Because in chapter eight, Ezra said, now's not a time for mourning and grieving. We're gonna celebrate. Go have a feast, right? They, they recognized the Feast of the Booths again and they went off and they celebrated and they had this amazing time. But they eventually get to the point where they have to deal with their sin. If they're gonna come back into this uh, covenant relationship with God, there has to be this moment that says, we have wronged you. We have been unfaithful. We confess, we repent, we want to live differently. And that's what's happening in Nehemiah 9. So go ahead and turn there. I'm sure you're already there because I've been yapping for a couple minutes, but go ahead and Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to read, uh, starting in verse 1, we're kind of break this up into two sections here. Uh, and so we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 5 first. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth, and with the earth on their heads. So this is already a different posture, different tone than the, than the last chapter. They came in here ready to do business with God because they had changed their attire. This was, all this stuff was kind of normal for putting yourself in a subservient place. And so they had the, these sackcloth, which sometimes were special garments and sometimes the equivalent of like work clothes, coveralls, just the idea that they were not getting fancy for this occasion. They were placing themselves below. They put dirt on their heads. That's what's happening here. And this is in the same month, by the way. So this is the seventh month. It's the beginning of their year, right? And they just had all these great festivals. The seventh month is where the Day of Atonement is, this moment where they rekindle their covenant and relationship with God. And so it's in the same month. And so this is sort of chapter eight and nine. It's just one event right after the other. So in the 24th day, hold on, chapter eight was the second day of the month. So this is in the span of about 22 days right here. So in the 24th day, verse two, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their father. Now, just a quick note, because I'm not going to dive deep into this, but verse two, uh, they separated themselves from foreigners. uh, And mostly uh, the reason for this was because this was Israel's sin that they were about to confess. This was their, it's not because they disliked the foreigners or anything like that. Uh, It's because this was something that their people needed to deal with. That's what's happening here. Verse three, and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God for a quarter of the day. 
So not half the day or a third of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Benai, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buniah, Sherebiah, Benai, and Chenani. And they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pathiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all, blessing and praise. So this is the first part here, kind of setting the scene for what's happening. The Israelites had devoted themselves to God's word for this entire month. We have this picture of them just being saturated and marinated in the law of the Lord. And so at the beginning of chapter 8, Ezra reads, he delivers this great sermon. The Levites disperse and help people understand. And what we get from chapter 8 is that this was a, not a one-time deal, but a continual pattern. They continued to break up into families or to small groups and study the word together. They were studying the law and, I, and figuring out what it meant. And so as they were studying that we saw last week in, in chapter 8, they came across this feast of the booths. And they looked at it and they're like, well, it's here. This is the right time. We should be doing this, right? And so they, they did it. They, there's this awakening that the word of God is for them for today. It wasn't some distant historical document, but as they were encountering it, they were finding things that would change their life immediately, and they were responding in kind. And so they assembled in chapter 9 together, but this time, it was two days after the solemn assembly and the, and the last festival, they were fasting, and they were in sackcloth and with dirt on their heads, and their posture uh, of the people of God was a, a mourning one. It was a mourning posture and a readiness to examine their hearts and be laid before God. So often David wrote in the Psalms, examine my heart, cleanse my heart, search my heart, O God. And this is the posture that they come in, ready for the Lord to examine them. And the Israelites are in full realization mode, right? Their first reaction in chapter eight was to weep. And Ezra told them not to, there would be a better time for that. And this is that time to deal with it right now. Here in chapter nine, we see that Ezra has allowed them to grieve and mourn over their sins and the sins of their fathers, and even leads them in how to repent. So what was maybe glossed over in chapter 8 is now a big deal in chapter 9. And this was a genuine spiritual revival for the people of God. In obedience to God's law, the people broke off forbidden alliances with non-Jews. And, and once again, not because they didn't like them, but to highlight the fact that it was their story, their sins, their disobedience that they had to deal with. Have you ever, guys, like with your family, maybe had a night where you didn't invite guests over and you have to deal with family business? Like that's kind of what's happening right here. We say, okay, don't bring the friends over. Don't bring the, the aunts and the uncles or the extra people over. Like we need to do business as a family. That's what's happening right here. They're doing business with God, making things right. So first came the reading of the Torah, and then they confessed, and then they worshiped. And the worship was built on the word. What I want you guys to notice about chapter 8 and chapter 9 is the word comes first. It's on the foundation of God's revelation of himself that the people respond, they worship, they confess, they celebrate. It starts with the word. And that tells us that as God is reestablishing their identity as a people, he's reestablishing their identity on his word. It's not on an experience. It's not on their special, unique situation. It's on his unchanging word. His revelation of himself, his story, his love, his faithfulness. That's what they're being built on. 
And the Levites began with this call to worship in verse 5, stand up and, and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. And, and what's really interesting is this barely habitable city, right? The, the encircling armies and nations around them that would love to see them kept down. Poverty and, and seeming insignificance of the Jews compared to the rest of the nations are all transcended by the glories of God. So in the midst of like not a great situation, they'd rebuilt the wall. It was a moment to celebrate, but life was far from incredible for the Hebrew people. But in the midst of that, the priests still call them to worship and call them to look at the the glories of God. Because no matter what is happening in their current time and day and age, God is worthy of our worship and our praise. And so in the midst of what may not be a great situation, they still worship So let's look to, to verse six. And verse six, what is happening here is this is one long prayer from verse six to the very end of chapter nine. Israel had seen on full display their own brokenness and the faithfulness of God. Now they were letting their whole posture reflect that and they had this heart of repentance for their sin. And how they pray, it's an interesting prayer. They pray essentially the story of God. From all the way back to creation, this is their confession. And over and over and over again, you'll see how much they they talk about how he is faithful and all that God has done. And this story is told through the lens of what God has done to show his goodness, faithfulness, mercy, and love. And and the word you is, is, uh, is in here so many times. And the Levites have committed themselves to seeing the story through the lens of God's provision. So in the midst of still a barely uh, habitable city and in the midst of hardship and in the midst of slavery and exile, they are still looking at their own story through the lens of God's bigger story and his provision, his character, and his grace. God's character is revealed through history as gracious, faithful, merciful, It even says in here, slow to anger, full of love in verse 17. And he does not leave us in our brokenness. And that's what they are confessing. And before we read, it's also helpful to read this prayer through the the eyes of the returned exiles. So even though the word of God is unchanging and what they're remembering about the story of God is unchanging, they're, they're looking at their own situation and not being blind to the fact that they are still very much in exile and it is on the grace of God and the nation of Persia that they're even allowed to rebuild this city. They had experienced many of the same things that the generations and their forefathers had before. And so I think even for us as we read this prayer, we too can appreciate God's grace and all of our ups and downs in a faithful relationship with him. So here's, I want to give you guys the flow because it's a lot. It's a lot of verses we're about to read here and I want to give you the flow of what's happening. The flow starts in verse six with the praising of God as creator. Then moving on to the covenant with Abraham in verse seven and eight. And the great and wonderful acts of God and, and leading them out of slavery in Egypt in the next few verses. Then the care of God in the desert and how, they, how he provided for them as they were wandering around for 40 years. Then the, the moment at Mount Sinai where they were given the law and this definition of God's people and kind of the desert wandering time with Moses. And then in verse 22, praising him for the conquering of the Holy Land, the promised land. But still the unfaithfulness of Israel and even God's patience with them throughout. And then at the very end, they confess their own sin. And so there's a lot of ways we can, we can read this particular story, but there's kind of a part one and a part two. And part one is verses six through 31. 
And part two is verses 32 through the end here. And when we get to 31 and 32, notice, notice the change. I want you guys to see if you pick up on that. So we're going to read. Let's read from verse six till the end of the chapter. In verse six, they're praying, right? The Levites are leading them in this, in this prayer of worship. And I, I don't know if they're reading this all together, if it's being read over them or something. But in verse six, they say, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Gigashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths, as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light when you, uh, when you, for them the way in which they should go. You came down from Mount Sinai and spoke with them from the heaven and gave them the right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. And you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commands. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return their slavery in Egypt." But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day nor the pillar of fire by night to, to light for them by the way which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted in your great goodness. Nevertheless, 
they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commands, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. And nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let all, let all, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon your kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them. And in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress." Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Let's just take a moment and pray. Father, there are a lot of things we can say about this story, this prayer. Would you highlight where we need to go this morning? Would you um, bring to bear the truth that our heart needs to settle on individually and, and together as a church? God, reading that prayer immediately made me look inward and remember all the ways that you've been faithful and all the ways that I have not. And I'm so grateful for your grace and your mercy. God, that even if I lived up to every righteous law, it would not be enough. And so I'm just so grateful for Christ and all he's done for us. God, would you speak to us through these, this momentous prayer and would we walk away just in awe of your glory? Amen. So this prayer is, is pretty spectacular. It's 
the most comprehensive retelling of the story of God in all of the Old Testament. These are the people of God recounting their entire history from creation. And look at how many times the word you was used. You did this. You are this way. You did this. You brought us out of this slavery. You led us. You provided for us. You guided us. And a majority of this section focuses on God as redeemer, right? And all throughout the story, he has a plan, a faithful plan for his people, and they continue to not follow the plan. And in his mercies, he brings them out of slavery. He delivers them. He has a plan of redemption for them. So there's two parts I mentioned to this prayer. The first is verses 6 through 31, And this particular section is mostly dealing with the generations that have gone before them, their forefathers. And this prayer praises God for his character and conduct, and it begins, as the Bible does, by describing God's faithfulness in creation, in the creation of everything. And then his grace and faithfulness in calling Abraham and starting a relationship, a covenant with him. And then his faithfulness with the people of God after he leads them out of Egypt and in the wandering land and in the promised land and all of these things, the faithfulness on God is on display. And in this, I mean, there, I was even, I honestly, up until last night, just trying to decide where, where are we going to head and just asking the Lord just to highlight a few things. And I don't want to take away anything from the complete story of God. I just want to highlight a few things that are in here. This is so, honestly, I read this chapter and I'm like, well, this just might be the next 10 weeks of preaching for us, but uh, don't worry, that's not what we're doing. But I just want to highlight a couple of things that were just jumping out at me uh, for us. And the first that we see in, starting in verse six, is that confession, and repentance is not about us. It's about God. So this prayer is insanely God-centered. Sometimes when we, when we make confession or we repent of our sins or even as we're maybe writing out like a testimony or sharing our testimony, uh, we have this tendency occasionally to make it about us whether it's our, the bad stuff we did before Jesus saved us and, and we highlight those things, or it's how, you know, we found the light and how we were so great in finally striking up this relationship with God and, and stuff like that. And just our human tendency is to make the story about us. And what we see from the very beginning of this prayer is that this prayer is about God. They are desperately aware that it's his story And that it's his plan that they are brought into. God's the one who rescued them, who gave them an identity, gave them a story. And it's on him that this covenant rests. They're not making this prayer about themselves. They recognize it's God who has the power to uphold this relationship. And so they are radically God-centered in this prayer. And this may not seem that, that radical to us, but just think for a moment the last time you spent time in prayer. And this is not like guilt or anything, but just think how often we tend to go to like asking for the things that we need or kind of announcing to God the things we, you know, the things we need him to like deal with in our lives in that particular day or week or something like that. And just what would it look like if our prayers were this radically God-centered? It's astounding. The second thing that was jumping out at me is in verse 13 and 14. Look at how God does not redeem a people from bondage just to leave them in ambiguity. As he rescues them, as he redeems them, he gives them a way of life. He gives them a mission, a purpose. He gives them clarity in what they are doing here on earth. 
Look at verse, th- verse 13. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them the right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. Look at how this is highlighted as a positive thing, not something that weighs them down. Right? Sometimes when we think the law of the Lord, we think of these shackles that we carry on our shoulders, these weights that like draw us down. But look at how they pray, thanking God for the law, for these commandments. This was a good thing, and they knew it. They knew it because they'd not upheld this, and they'd seen the danger of that. They had experienced the result of not adhering to this relationship that God had set up. And we see it's God in his graciousness saved them, rescued them, and says, here, I want you to live. This is how you're going to thrive and flourish on earth. This is how you're going to make my love known to the entire world. Nations are going to look at you wondering why you're winning battles, wondering why you're being provided for, why you're having food that just drops on the ground every morning and getting water out of a rock. They're going to look at the way you live and wonder why. Their role was to be priests to the entire world. So you remember the role of the Levites? They were the priests to the nations. They sort of handled the sacrifices. They they kept up the temple and they were the, the spiritual leaders for the people of God. And God was saying that they are those people for everybody on earth, that other nations should look at them and see how they're living and thriving and flourishing and say, I want to live like that. The way they treated each other, the way they treated outsiders, foreigners, the way they made sure none went hungry and and how they dealt with their land and everything about their lives was meant to highlight that God was providing for them, that he was their strength, their sustainer. And so these laws are a good thing. When God rescues someone and gives them an identity, he gives them a way to live and it's a good thing. The law brings them into relationship, a family and a kingdom, and and in each of those are are roles and responsibilities that the members of the family play out. And they play out out of delight and out of obedience to the king, not out of duty and begrudging attitudes. Well, of course they do in in the story of Israel. We see that, but that's not the intention. The intention is out out of gratefulness and thankfulness that God has saved them. They are given these amazing roles and responsibilities to live out on earth so that others might know the goodness of their God. Right? In his grace, he shows them how to live. It's what a good father does. We, Sherry and I have a 17 month old, Calvin. His life is about to radically change because in a couple weeks he's getting a little brother, and I don't think he even knows what's about to hit him. But I was thinking about this and just thinking about how God is, is such a good father and how he leads his kids. I, I'm always thinking about how can I lead and guide and train Calvin up as best as we possibly can. Now, Calvin is 17 months old, which means he doesn't know everything. We on the same page, right? He doesn't have a firm grasp on life itself right now. He has a great grasp of the life mom and dad provide for him in these bounds. But part of our uh, parental guidance with Calvin is giving him rules and giving him a way to live that will help him thrive and flourish, right? There are things that if he does, we will discipline him for because they are not good for him. Now, you guys may not know me, but is it because I hate Calvin that we discipline him? (laughs) 
Okay, you guys were you chuckled and then were just silent for a minute. Okay, no, not at all. Is it is it because we despise him and we want him to live a terrible life that we have this way of living that we've presented him and we hold him accountable to? No, it's because we love him. We want to see him thrive and flourish. We want to see the best for him. And the way we can do that at his age is providing a standard for how he is to live. And so there are things big and small that we are training him in. So one of those things is, is in our kitchen, we have, a, we have a, a gas stove, right? And so there is an open flame every time we cook a meal. So it's like living life on the edge a little bit. But every once in a while, he'll creep into the kitchen and he's just, just tall enough, like about, like a two months ago, he was tall enough to like turn the knobs on the stove. And now he's tall enough to where his little fingers start to like reach over the top of things and start yanking things down. Now, I know this is like maybe a trite or a cliche example, but would it be loving of me to just let him experience it and just, you know, see if he'd ever want to do that again? That would be terrible, right? People would come to our house and take him away if the, if the things were like that. No, out of our parental love and graciousness, we tell him and we train him that that is dangerous and not good for him. Touching the open flame will not help him flourish and thrive in life. And I think we're meant to get the same picture. Often in scripture, we have this picture as God as a good father. Even Jesus says, you guys, fathers, know how to give good gifts. How much greater are the gifts that God gives you? We have this picture as God is a good father for us, who loves us, wants us to thrive and flourish and enjoy him. And it is in that context that he gives the people of God, the Israelites, the law. This is how you will live best. This is how you will enjoy life best. And even though we are not under the, uh, the, Israel, uh, the Israeli law that they were under, the Mosaic law, Jesus says in John 10 that he came that we may have life abundant, that his purpose is still that life in Christ would be a full one, where people thrive and flourish and realize their identity and realize their, their mission and purpose in life and live that out in this God-honoring, God-glorifying relationship. That is, that is the goal of our life here on earth. And that is evident throughout all of scripture that God does not redeem you and I. He does not save us out of the domain of darkness, Colossians 1 says, so that we may just wander in ambiguity. But he gives us clarity of mission and purpose and and he gives us a calling on our life. And we may not always know the specifics of that calling, but we know the general cause to enjoy him to follow after him, to pursue him, to live a life following, apprenticing Jesus and living like him here on earth. And the third thing I was sort of just um, thinking about and praying through is, is in verse 17. Let's read that. Verse 17, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Verse 17 tells us that God's gifts and God's story for us are no sign of our own righteousness, but of his character and nature. We have to understand that it is in the nature of God to forgive to show mercy, to show grace, to be slow to anger. We will continue to fall short of the glory of God. We are imperfect. 
Nobody is perfect. So if you're looking around in this room looking for who the perfect people are, they're not here. They don't exist. There are no perfect people in this room. We all mess up. We all fall short of this life that God has for us, but in his infinite and inexhaustible grace and mercy and forgiveness is where we find our life. This passage tells us where our hope must be. He is our hope. In the chapter before, in 8, verse 10, it is the joy of the Lord that is our strength. Every fabric and foundation of our life is resting on who God is. Our hope is not denying or explaining away our rebellion and trying to justify our sin, but simply in the character of God. So notice in this confession, like I, I tend to do all the time, I don't know if you guys do this as well, but I, I try to justify when I'm wrong. Uh, and, and so like being wrong is uncomfortable for me. Uh, I don't know if it's uncomfortable for you, but it's most often, uh, you know, highlighted in my relationship with my wife, Sherry, where I think I'm right 100% of the time, and it's at best like 80-20, you know, where she's right all, most of the time, and, and so I'm, I'm like getting used to that in life, you know, uh, which, is, which is always a fun part of, of marriage. I don't know where I was going with that, sorry. Anyway. <laughs> It's, it's this redemption that God has, this life for God has all rests on him. There's nothing I can do. And in their, in their confession and in their prayer, they're not trying to say, yeah, well, we disobeyed, but man, that, that golden calf looked really, really cool. If you just saw it, you would want to worship it too. Or like, man, those, those like women of the other nation you told us not to marry, they just, they looked great. Like, I think they would be a great addition to our family. Or like, they didn't try to justify all of these things they were doing. They just recognized in their confession that this whole thing rests on God, on his character. They were counting on his continual faithfulness. What I want you to notice is that there's no like clean ending to this prayer where they say, and if you could do this for us, God, that would be amazing. Amen. No, they spend like 30 verses just retelling the story of God and counting all the goodness. And at the very end, they just say, let all this not seem small to you. We're still suffering. They don't ask, they don't make it like a direct petition because they know God will continue to be faithful. So they pray the story of God, trusting that story not to change. The first part of this prayer is is God-centered. It's all about him and his goodness and his story and how humanity has failed to be faithful back to God. But there's something unique about the second part of this where it picks up in verse 32. And I wonder if you noticed it when we were reading there. You notice there's something, there was a a subtle shift from verse 31 to 32. That shift is when they stopped retelling the story and where they entered the story. Do you guys notice that? Look at verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end to them or forsake them, for you are gracious and merciful God. They're confessing the sins of the people that went before them. And look at verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let, all, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon who? Us. Yeah, exactly. So the story has shifted a little bit. They go from retelling the story of God and in verse 32 they say, and here's where we come into the picture. 
It's very similar to what happens in the book of Acts. I don't know if you guys have studied the book of Acts before, but the book of Acts was written by Luke, uh, one of the guy who wrote the gospel of Luke. He was a doctor. He was an incredible reporter and an accounting of everything that Jesus had done. And he writes the book of Acts, which is the story of the early church. And in verse 20 through 21, this is kind of the Paul section of Acts where he's planting all these churches. He's commissioning these elders, praying for people on his missionary journeys. And in Acts 20, at the very end, we have a similar shift here where it goes from they and them to we and us. Look at this. Zach, you can go ahead and put it on the screen behind me. Acts 20, uh, at the very end, verse 36. And we, when he had said these things, he, this is, he's talking about Paul, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul, kissed him, being sorrowful, uh, sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, and they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Okay, so right here, if you care, he's praying with the Ephesian elders. He's leaving them to go somewhere else, and he's kind of commissioning them. That's the end of chapter 20. Look at the beginning of chapter 21, verse 1. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to cause, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. What happened there? The story went from Luke reporting from other accounts and other people and doing his investigative journalism to he entered the story. He got on the boat with Paul and the crew. And there's this subtle shift that goes from this is their story, this is the history, this is all that had happened to them to I'm now swept up in this. This is now my story too. It's like, bear with me, the beginning of Star Wars. <laughs> so episode seven just came out on iTunes so you could download it and watch it all the time. And so I was watching it with Calvin the other day. I don't care if he's too young. He's gonna love me for it later. We were watching it together um, and I was just like, the beginnings of Star Wars are so classic, right? So even if you've never seen any of the Star Wars movies, you know how they start in a galaxy, you know, far away, long time ago. And then these wor- the space words start floating in the stars, right? And it's just like these three paragraphs, like eight or nine sentences. And it's not meant to give you everything, right? It doesn't give you the whole story, their whole history, but what it does, he just says, here's what you need to know for right now, right? And it's sort of like at the end of those three paragraphs, you're thrusted into the story. Remember episode four, the very original Star Wars. There's these, no one knew what was going on, right? They saw this movie, they had no idea. I wasn't alive then, but I can just only imagine the first people who saw this movie. They see these words floating in space and something about a rebellion and something about, you know, Princess Leia and the spaceship and the, you know, they captured the plans for the Death Star. And you're like, what the heck is the Death Star? And, and all this stuff. And then, I, and then you just see the ship come from under the camera and then this even huger, this bigger ship following them and pursuing there's lasers going back and forth and you're instantly like thrusted into the story, right? There's no room for you to catch up or to get your bearings. You're in it. And that's what's happening in Acts 20 and 21. It's what's happening in verses 31 and 32 of Nehemiah is there's this time from there is history, there is story. This is what happened to them. Now I'm in it. And this is important for us to get this morning because so often we are disconnected from this. We read these stories, we read the accounts of the people of God or the early church, and it's always they and them. And what is fascinating about the story of God is it sweeps us into it as well. So as believers, this is your story. This is your history. I don't care if they're your ancestors or not, whether you're related by blood or not, these are your people. 
This is your story. This, is, this prayer has been how God has been faithful with your people and how the people have let him down, but he's been inexhaustibly forgiving. This is our story as a people. Something continually happens in our minds that just separates us from these stories. It can feel like these things happened in a, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far away or whatever, and they just don't happen anymore or whatever. And what's really interesting, if you've read, if you finish the book of Acts, it sort of just stops. Like there's no clean ending to that either. You guys notice that in Acts chapter 28, it just, it sort of stops. Like there's some point where Luke is doing the reporting. He's like, guys, I gotta, I gotta stop writing and, and help this thing out. I gotta get to work. And it's this picture that we're meant to have that we continue the same story that Jesus had started when he ascended to heaven and commissioned his disciples, that it started even before that, when God's make, remaking this covenant with his people, Nehemiah, it started before that when he made the covenant with Abraham, it started before that when he created everything. And at that moment, the prophet Jeremiah tells us that God knew who we were. From the outset of creation, you were in God's mind. Who you would marry, the kind of job you would have, the kids that you'd have, all your troubles, your toils, all the baggage. He knew all that. He knows where you're headed. This is our story too. When we read this prayer of confession, retelling the story of God, it should give us a depth to our faith that we maybe didn't have before or didn't understand before. It's easy for ourselves to distance us from the work of God. But the reality of the story is God's relentless. He draws us in. He doesn't let us stay on the outskirts and on the fringes. And one of the things that was important for these Israelites to understand is that even though they may have not been the generation responsible for the disobedience, they felt responsible to confess them and repent from them and to live differently. The confession that is taking place is a, not only a confession for their own sin, but the sins of their fathers. And they're sort of demonstrating two things for us. And one, that we are not merely individuals, but members of a greater community and a family that has shaped us for, for better or for worse. And the second is rather than denying the sin of those that have gone before us, is to recognize that and recognize that people will continue to sin after us as well. And the posture that God wants from us is, is humble, is contrite is to say, look, I know I don't bring much to the table or anything to the table. I know I have messed up, but God, you are faithful. You always forgive. You are always gracious. You are always merciful. After spending time in God's word, they knew that they needed to get away from the stories of disobedience in the past and return to a right relationship with God. And the way they end this chapter right here, and there's more stories, there's, there's more for us in the, in the next coming weeks, but the, the way they just end is sort of, God, this is our situation. This is what's happening. Right? There's no clean break, there's no clean ending, no neat bow on top. They just say, this is the way it is. We are counting on you to come through. Their confession of what God has done is not just a declaration of objective facts, but a story in which they look at their own lives and recognize how God has been faithful. And I think that's the word for us today. So we're going to, in just a few minutes, respond. And where I want us to sort of land as a, as a community together is right there. In light of all that God's done, what's our response? 
This is our story too. In light of all that God's done throughout all of history, in light of all he's done in your life, what, what is our response? I can't answer that for you uh, because that might be different for each one of us. But I will say as we live our lives, continually understanding more and more the story and the gospel of God, we will continue to become aware of our sinfulness more and more. But that'll cause us and in his kindness lead us to repentance more and more and to be changed into the likeness of Jesus more and more. And when you build your life on the word of God like the Hebrews are doing in these chapters, things will change. Things will happen in your life. You'll learn about the greatness and the mercy of God and you'll become a worshiper of him greater and greater. The more time you spend with him understanding his story, the more it should magnify our worship of him. You will see how sinful and far apart from God you truly were before Jesus saved you and it might cause you to grieve that you still sin. But we'll see the power of Jesus and his death and and resurrection overcoming those things. The Israelites got a fresh start to build their lives on God's word and it's changing everything. So the invitation for us this morning is exactly the same, to build our lives on the foundation of God's word and let it change everything. So Peter, Megan, go ahead and come on up. We're gonna head into a time of uh, a response here and what I want to do for us this morning is do what the Israelites did in chapter 9. As the Hebrews remembered God's story and all that he's done and all that was needed to bring them to restoration, we too must remember these things in our own life. So we spent the entire morning talking about the story of God through the lens of the people of Nehemiah chapter 9. So in light of all God's done, what is, what is our response today? We have a couple of ways to respond specifically. Peter and Megan are going to lead us in some songs that'll like draw our heart closer to God and kind of be able to put words on things we, we maybe feel and don't know how to put words to. We put these words on our lips in hopes they, they change our hearts and direct us towards him. And we also have a, a giving box over there if you'd like to give in communion to celebrate the work that Christ has done. Before we get to any of that, I want to lead us in sort of a prayer of repentance for us. And so I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Um, and there is so much more I could say about this, but in, in 1 John 1, 9, John says if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive. And so um, just as a response and, and as a practice for us both this morning and hopefully something that would spur you on to continual repentance, we're going to pray this prayer. And it's going to be a prayer based on Nehemiah chapter 9. So if you would uh, close your eyes with me as we pray, and I'm going to ask you to do something that may be really uncomfortable for some people, or maybe not, I don't, I don't know, but to just put your arms out in front of you. So maybe not put them in your pockets, not cross them or whatever, put them out in front of you. This is just a posture for us, like the Israelites did, just kind of in humble submission and asking to receive from the Lord. So I'm going to pray this, and you can kind of follow along silently in your head with me, and And obviously there's two ways you can do this. We can phone this in for sure and kind of let it be a ritual or whatever. Or you can authentically engage God in what he's trying to do in your heart. So let's pray together, kind of arms out. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. Those that have gone before us have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments, 
and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own lives and amid your great goodness that you gave them. And in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and resisted the life you had before them. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with us, let not all the hardships of our lives seem little to you. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake us. As we take just a few moments to respond, Father, would you heal our hearts of past wounds or brokenness? God, would you demonstrate and show us your inexhaustible grace this morning? And in the powerful name of Jesus, we can respond and celebrate in. We say amen.